Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. Publisher and chairman of the New York Times, A.G. Salzberger, revealed in an interview that the White House was extremely upset with the paper over its coverage of Biden's age and unpopularity in the polls. Salzberger said, quote, we are going to continue to report fully and fairly, not just on Donald Trump, but also on President Joe Biden. He is a historically unpopular incumbent and the oldest man to ever hold this office. We've reported on both of these realities extensively, and the White House has been extremely upset about it, close quote. Solzberger's comments came after special counsel Robert Hur released a report earlier this month citing the president's failing memory as a reason not to prosecute him for mishandling classified documents, and also after the most recent polls show 6% of Americans believe Biden is too old to effectively serve in office. Walter, is this news or faux news? Well, you ask yourself, always when you ask yourself if something is news or faux news, you ask yourself, does it change anything? And it doesn't seem to me like any of this changes anything. Uh, Biden is as old as he was. The New York Times is what it was. The election will be what it will be. So here we are. The one thing in that, uh, just to touch on it, you said that Hearst said that uh, Biden Biden's memory was failing. I thought that it was more he was saying that he could give a very, you know, if he were called to the stand, he could give a very effective impression of an elderly man with a failing memory. Therefore, I don't think I could get a conviction. Therefore, it doesn't make any sense to indict, which is, you know, it's it's a subtle difference, but it's a real difference. I don't actually say, think the report actually said that Biden was senile. It's just that it was very easy for him to look senile. So he could just be old and crafty. One follow-up I got to ask you about. There was also a Siena poll this week of voters in New York State showing that among Jewish voters in New York, who you might ordinarily think of as being the kind of bluest of blue, Trump has a nine-point lead on Biden. The poll didn't ask any questions about Israel or Gaza or anything like that, but it did ask about the mental and physical fitness of the two likely candidates. And the crosstabs seem to suggest that New York Jewish voters basically like Biden and they dislike Trump, but are skeptical enough about Biden's mental acuity to think Trump might do a better job. What, what do you make of that? You know, I, I don't think uh, I don't think it's a good sign for Biden. Not that New York is a swing state. Let's uh, let's say this. This doesn't look like it's going to change anything in the Electoral College. Uh, but it does suggest that um, Dearborn, Michigan is not the only place in the United States that tr- that Biden should be thinking about when he thinks about the domestic implications of foreign policy moves. All right, our second story. It's three stories in one. First, a New York judge in a civil fraud case ordered Donald Trump to pay a penalty of $350 million and barred him from serving in top roles at any companies in the state of New York for three years, including his own. Second, the office of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg announced the trial of Donald Trump, who's been charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records related to so-called hush money payments, is scheduled to start on March 25th and is expected to last six weeks. And finally, special counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to deny a request from Trump 
to pause the election interference case pending his appeal of a recent D.C. circuit court ruling that rejected his claims of immunity from criminal prosecution. Walter, are we at the news or faux news stage of the Trump trials? I think we got to wait for to see what the Supreme Court actually does in, in that appeals case, because honestly, it's not really news when a lawyer files a brief. It's news when a judge rules on the brief. So we'll hold on that. The other look, I, you know, the 344 million, um, that strikes me as pretty blatantly political. Um, as far as I can tell, you know, and I haven't I can't say I've been following this case closely, um, but from what I can tell, it looks as if there was not a lot of harm to anybody. You know, even if Trump did, in fact, inflate the value of his holdings, um, the payments it's not like he tricked somebody into paying, you know, lending him a lot of money. And then it turned out there was no collateral when he wasn't paying and they folded. So it, it looks to me like a purely political thing and, and does not reflect well either on the judge or on the judiciary of New York. Uh, the, uh, the business about his not holding uh, top office in a corporation, that seems to me to be much more normal as the kind of penalty that 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 you would face in a, in a case like that. Um, and then the Stormy Daniels business, uh, I think most people would say that was that was neither old, you know news nor phone news. It was old news in the sense that this has already been processed. And I can't remember if we've talked about it on the podcast, Jeremy, but but I've often thought that um, Berlusconi did very well as he got older by having recurring sex scandals. Uh, you know, you get to a certain age and what you want them to think, you would rather have them think, what a disgusting old goat than, you know, needs a walker to get up and take his pills. And so it's probably a lot better to have from Trump's in, in a Trump Biden race you want to be the one that is accused of excessive engagement with porn stars. And so I'm not sure that this is actually going to hurt Trump. And again, I mean, is there anybody in America who's got any real doubts about, you know, let's just say the, the under news of President Trump? Right. All right. Our final story. Alexei Navalny, the fierce anti-corruption campaigner who galvanized Russia's political opposition, has died in prison, according to Russian authorities, bringing to an end a life dedicated to fighting the country's descent into authoritarianism under President Vladimir Putin. The cause of his death was still being established. Prison authorities said he reportedly collapsed after a walk at his prison colony last Friday, after which they said he lost consciousness and couldn't be revived. Navalny, who was 47 and had been in jail since 2021, was serving three prison sentences amounting to more than 30 years on charges he and his supporters said were fabricated. Walter, I won't ask you if Navalny's death is faux news, but what we all presume is Putin's murder of his most high-profile critic and a man considered a hero by many of us in the context of Putin's quarter century now as head of Russia. Where does this rank? Again, I, I don't think, you know, did anybody learn anything new about Putin? Um, you know, what we've been hearing about for years now is just a whole string of deadly 
um, falls from windows. Uh, there was the business that happened with uh, the Wagner, the plane that blew itself up mysteriously in the sky. You know, there's, there's really, we know what we're dealing with here. And this didn't tell us anything new. I think what's what's interesting is that this is happening just as basically the Western opposition to Russia in Ukraine appears at a point near collapse. The U.S. Uh, is deadlocked. The Congress is still deadlocked over shipments. Uh, the Europeans uh, are really not getting anywhere. I believe the Bundestag uh, has uh, voted against sending some missiles to Ukraine. Uh, so, and, and Russia appears to be advancing. Now, I would caution people uh, in, in war, things you often see these swings of fortune. And so, just as we had people on day one of the war thinking, oh, Russia's won, it's over. And then two weeks later, Russia's totally going to fail. It's the most amazingly stupid mistake ever. Putin has really screwed it up this time. To then a bit later, Russia's grinding it out. No, Ukraine is winning. No, Russia's winning. This kind of, you know, sort of cheap, emotional um, over-interpretation of the news. So we've now gone into a Ukraine has lost the war cycle. And this is no more uh, certain than any of these other false conventional wisdoms that we've seen. But nevertheless... Um, it is clear that at the moment, the West is failing in Ukraine. Putin is succeeding in Ukraine. And Putin is doing this with a tiny economy, uh, with uh, shortages of all kinds of civilian economy that's hurting. And, and the West, uh, the, the, this generation of Western leaders uh, really should not be able to look itself in the mirror in the morning without shame. It, it, it's an extraordinary um, display of arrogance, narcissism, incompetence, and, and I think fundamental lack of seriousness and lack of character. You mentioned the $95 billion Senate bill that includes aid to Ukraine that's currently be being held up in the House, where Mike Johnson, at least so far, is refusing to bring it to a vote. At this point, it seems like the, there's not much else Putin could do that would convince House Republicans opposed to the bill to pass it, at least as it is. What, if anything, do you think will break the deadlock over USAID to Ukraine? You know, I think, again, I think the Biden administration is now in a trap of its own creation. Uh, that Biden thought that the way to talk about the war against Russia and the war in Ukraine is it's the same thing as the fight against Trump at home. I mean, shocker shocker, having defined the war in that terms, Trump isn't helping you. It was, again, this is arrogance and lack of understanding of basic politics. It was mistakenly thinking they wouldn't need any help in getting this done. And so they framed, they framed it in the most unhelpful way possible. Beyond that, uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, but um, the Biden, the whole Biden plan in Ukraine is to save face while Russia gains some territory. That is, it's not a plan for victory. It's a plan to spend hundreds of billions of dollars by, you know, it may well be by the time it's all done. And yet, you know, it's clear that, Bi that Biden lives in fear of Putin's escalation dominance that in delays of shipments of weapons in all kinds of ways, 
not only the United States, but most of our European allies are cowed by Putin, but they don't want to look cowed. They don't want to think of themselves as cows, but they're cowed. And so this whole thing, again, I want to say I support Ukraine. I want Ukraine to win. I want Russia to lose. Uh, and I think it's not only important to Ukraine, this is not out of some you know, pity poor Ukraine. This is about Russia becomes an empire if it adds significant chunk of Ukraine to what Russia already has. And it will use anything it gains in this to make more trouble. It's not, you know, it's not give me a chunk and then I'll be quiet. I mean, it doesn't work that way. So it's important to our national interest. It's important for any hope of a peaceful world. But I just feel that what we've got is an administration that has consistently failed to grapple with the truly serious nature of the of the challenge that we face, which has failed to develop an effective political strategy at home to maintain the support that you need for something like this, and which has failed to develop a, a, a strategy, an effective military strategy. I want the aid to pass. But when people tell me, why should I vote for, why should I incur unpopularity and risk the, tr the wrath of Trump to vote for something which won't win the war, which is basically a, you know, a, a, you know, a large expensive fig leaf for essentially a failing policy toward Russia. And, you know, it's, it would not be irrational for Trump to say, listen, why don't we just have Ukraine lose the war without spending $150 billion? So we're in, I think we're in this awful situation where neither the Trump path nor the Biden path is viable. And yet one of the two is where is, is the path we'll walk. I would like to help Ukraine because I want, you, you know, who knows? Something could turn up. It's war. Things happen. And who knows, maybe in office, Trump would feel different about uh, losing to Biden. I mean, losing to, to Putin. Trump doesn't like to lose. But it's, it's, a, it's an awful mess. And it's sort of the latest stage of what I increasingly think of as a generational failure in American foreign policy. And I'm afraid, again, I, I, I don't see much sign at this point of, of a kind of deep rethink that you would need for, for us to, to move into a, a better place. All right, that does it for this week's news. Let's have the big conversation. Documents captured from radicals and terrorists in Pakistan warn darkly about a new axis of evil in the world a Zionist-Hindu-Crusader alliance bringing Israel, India, and the United States together in a war on Islam. They're wrong about the last part. All three countries want peaceful relations with Islamic countries based on mutual recognition and respect. The alliance is not a closed club, and Islamic countries are welcome to join. Otherwise, however, the radicals have a point— the deepening relations between the United States, India, and Israel are changing the geopolitical geometry of the modern world in ways that will make the lives of fanatical terrorists even more dismal and depressing, not to mention shorter, than they already are. Israel and the United States are both in a better long-term position than many Americans sometimes think. 
One of the main reasons is an Indian-Israeli connection that most Americans know nothing about. Walter, that was you writing in Via Media in April of 2010, 14 years ago. You're back in India this week. You've actually been there for a couple weeks now, talking domestic and foreign policy with lots of Indian officials, intellectuals, business people, and so on. So I thought this week we'd check back in on the Zionist Hindu Crusader Alliance, which you first wrote about when the Congress Party was still in power, but now a decade into the Modi era. Where does it stand? It is amazing to me how how many people that I speak to in, in India are interested in Israel, see Israel as good for India, believe the relationship really matters, and and want to see a strong um, connection. They, they talk here about the I2U2 group, which is Israel, India, the United States, and the UAE. And it's, uh, you know, from what I'm hearing, um, that's that's still a popular concept in the UAE is what the Indians are telling me. You know, there are so many levels, you know, the, the Congress Party for pure sort of raison, you know, d'etat was was very much engaged in in a relationship with Israel. Uh, in the BJP, it's it's not just it, it, there's a bit of a it's a bit of a love match. The the when you talk to people in the RSS, which is the kind of ideological civil group out of which, in many ways, the BJP springs, they they actually talk about they they see Zionism as as a very important intellectual reference point for Hindu nationals. Again, there's this idea of a people whose unity has been expressed historically through a common faith and culture rather than through a political unit that for much unlike say China which for most of its history has been more or less unified under a central ruler India for the thousands of years of its history it's actually been rather unusual for India or most of India to be united and so the Indians look at at the Jews as people who've been able to maintain a sense of identity, purpose, and vocation uh, in without the support of a state. And they see lots of interesting parallels. One thing I've been told, I haven't, certainly haven't heard this from the prime minister himself, but I'm told that Prime Minister Modi, one of the things he really admires and envies about the Zionists is that they were able to to make the ancient language of Hebrew, they were able to revive it, make it a modern language, and make it the ordinary language of conversation and life in Israel. I think there, there are people in the Hindutva movement who would like nothing better than to see Sanskrit uh, revived as the, the language of, uh, of modern India. Now, that's not going to happen from by all accounts. But it it shows the the degree to which there's an interest. By the way, Hinduism also sees itself as a non-proselytizing religion, uh, much as Judaism. Although I will say, in many of my conversations with Hindus, with Hindu intellectuals and all, they sort of start out by saying, you know, Hinduism, unlike those awful Abrahamic religions like Islam and Christianity, is not proselytizing. It's universal, so on and so forth. And this is why you should become a Hindu, because we're not proselytizing. <laughs> you know, I just kind of, you know, yes, you know, it is and it isn't. And that seems to be the way we are. Uh, you have to embrace contradictions to understand India. And I like doing it. 
So there are, there are hard uh, national interest considerations here too. And, and there's a lot of interest in India in deepening the tech relationship. Uh, India is uh, buying a lot of weapons and tech from Israel. I think there's going to be more of that in the future. There's also a sense that um, India sees itself as aligned with the monarchies in the Gulf, is worried about radicalism. I'm actually finding, somewhat to my surprise on this visit, there seems to be a little bit more coolness toward Iran than I've heard in India in the past. Some of that undoubtedly has to do with the threat, with the Houthi uh, shutdown of the Red Sea to commercial shipping. That's India's vital lifeline to Europe. Indians don't actually like it when you mess with their strategic supply lines. And the Indian Navy is actually, has actually sent a number of ships into the Red Sea with orders to fire if Indian uh, ships are fired on. And let me say to any Houthis who are listening to this broadcast, I would take that seriously. Um, if Indian crew on peaceful legal business are shot at and killed by, uh, by Houthi um, gunners or missile firers, my guess is that it would be the popular thing for an Indian prime minister to do to order retaliation in the run up to an election. You know, there's a real there's there's a national sense here of concern. And um, again, this sense that what what India wants is stable commercial relations with the Gulf. Um, I think the, the the investment back and forth is deep recently in the UAE Modi traveling just last week to the UAE to celebrate the opening of a Hindu temple in the UAE that is on the Arabian Peninsula, which we've been told there should not be any religions, only one religion here. Here's a temple full of idols has been established uh, on the territory of the Arabian Peninsula with wow. the full blessing of the UAE government. I'm told there have been talks about doing the same thing in Saudi Arabia. So this move from to a more modern form of Islam, greater tolerance, greater openness, is something that for Indians is in their national interest. Uh, Indians also, millions of Indians work in the Gulf, and Indians are concerned about their well-being when missiles are fired from the Houthis or from Iran at Gulf targets. There's a not inconsiderable chance that they'll hit Indians. So this is... There's a real nexus here. And the Indians, from what I'm being told, are in the middle or in the early stages of what could be a historic naval buildup with ultimately, you know, uh, as many as 200 ships in the not too distant future in the Indian Navy. And it is clear that one of the things they would be most concerned about would be the security of the oil shipments from the Gulf to India and of Indian commerce through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal to Europe. There, there's a lot going on there. Uh, the, the sort of rise or the return of Indian power to the Middle East is, is interesting. Again, the, the links are really deep. Thousands of years, particularly from South India, where the trade winds make for very favorable conditions for, for trade between Arabia and uh, and South India, archaeologists find you know thousand traces of thousands of years of trade going back into the Roman Empire and pre-Roman Greek times across these trade routes 
We know that Christianity and Judaism came to India very early through um, in, into South India. Um, there, there's just a lot going on there. When we think of the Middle East, we often just in our minds, okay, there's the Middle East the, here and there's South Asia there and they're not connected. And you know, that's not how people see it here. So I think one of the, it is, I, I believe that one of the major stories that we're still not paying enough attention to is both the rise of India's potential power in the Middle East and the broad strategic alignment between India's interests and those of both Israel and the United States. One follow-up with everything going on in Gaza and the West Bank, it makes me wonder where the issue of Kashmir fits into Modi's approach to all this. I, I've heard you talk in the past about how back in 47, 48, Israel's demand for a partition from a country in which Jews were the minority looked to a lot of Indians like the demand of Muslims for Pakistan and Gandhi's version of secular nationalism meant kind of keeping the various separatisms in check. But Hindutva is obviously a very different approach to Indian nationalism than Gandhi's. So does Modi want to avoid looking like Israel in Kashmir? Is it the opposite or is Israel kind of irrelevant there for him? I think there's there has been a fear in Indian diplomacy, uh, you know, for many decades um, one of the things the Indians did not want to see happen was what you might call the Palestinianization of the Kashmir issue. That is to say, where India's domination of parts of Kashmir would look, would be would become a kind of cause, international cause celebre, the way that the Israeli occupation uh, has done. And they were they were also afraid of a kind of coalition of of Islamic countries again, especially. Uh, worried, you know, where they were dependent on oil and other things. Would would the energy weapon be used? So there was so there was historically a good deal of caution. So there were, you know, long before there were official relations between Israel and India, there were unofficial relations, but they wanted to to keep it on the down low because it just uh, they, they didn't want those problems. These days, I think they feel uh, much more for much more confident that through their relations, their very, very close relations with the Gulf states, the one thing that's not going to happen is going to be a unified Islamist block of states against them on this ground. And the fact is that in many ways, you know, between India's policy toward Israel and the UAE's policy toward Israel, there's not actually a lot of daylight. And they've had um, they've had some significant success in getting Gulf investment into Kashmir. Which is, you know, again, a kind of a, it, it's less important financially than it is as a kind of seal of improvement and sign of good faith. So the other thing that's happened, of course, is is that the moral and political collapse of Pakistan, both as a model and as a rival, changes the equation a little bit. I mean, at the moment, the Indians are talking, you know, much more concerned as indeed people are pretty much everywhere about Pakistan falling apart rather than Pakistan launching new attacks on on India. And uh, interestingly, when I talk, when I've talked to Indians about the situation in Pakistan, I say, you know, they said, well, it's possible it will break up. You know, the the Afghans have have announced that they no longer believe in the Durant. They never believed it, but they're now saying that the boundary between Afghanistan and Pakistan isn't real. 
they're going, you know, there are lots of areas of Pakistan that that have a majority Pakhtun, which is the same group that's that's the leading group, ethnic group in Afghanistan. In, uh, Imran Khan, the um, uh, imprisoned Pakistani um, politician, uh, is uh, his greatest support is among the Pakhtuns, and, and he is a Pakhtun. The, the Taliban is now attacking back. So, the, you know, will, will Afghanistan try to take the Northwest province back or take it? Will uh, Pakistan, the various provinces in Pakistan, there's an independence movement in Baluchistan. There are a lot of people in Sindh who think that they're, they haven't been treated fairly by Punjab. Will the kind of dissolution that brought Bangladesh out of away from Pakistan, you know, will that happen? You would sort of think, you might think that Indians hearing this would go, yay, at last, you know, the, you know, ding dong, the witch is dead. But they're sort of saying, actually, you know, you know, it's like you if Pakistan dissolves, we'll just have more Pakistans. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's it's they don't see Pakistan as a geopolitical force arrival in, in the way they used to. They see it as a source of instability and a problem. And I think, you know, I think that's that's right. Kashmir as a as a sort of huge force. Um, uh, in in India's relationships with the rest of the world is much less. The other thing is that they've succeeded, the, the BJP with, let us say, a lot of support from Congress and across the, the Indian political spectrum has um, reintegrated Kashmir into a sort of more typical relationship with the rest of India. Kashmir used to have a lot of autonomy. There were all kinds of restrictions on non-Kashmiris moving in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they sort of abolished that part of, of, of the law, and, and Kashmir is more on a level playing field. So, so it's less of a running sore, at least in the minds of Indians now. We'll see what happens in the future. But for now, Kashmir is less of an issue in India and less of an issue in the minds of Indians in their relationship with the Muslim world generally. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. So about a decade ago, Walter, I went with you to India on one of your lecture tours. We went to Kerala, Delhi, Lucknow, Amritsar. And one of my memories of that trip was of reading The White Tiger by Aravanda Diga, which you turned me on to. This was many years before it became a Netflix movie, but it opened up the world of India's English language literature to me, which I was very grateful for. So this week, give us your top pick or picks from India's English literature. I, one of them is is nonfiction. I think V.S. Naipaul's A Wounded Civilization is a really profound book. And and it's it's rather timely in that one of the, he was he was apparently a supporter of building the Ram temple at Ayodhya and you know to sort of heal this sense of wounded hindu pride but uh, but he helped me understand i think for the first time the degree to which the sort of what indians in bjp will now call double colonization needing a double decolonization which is say that the the mughals had large had conquered large chunks of india uh, under Islam for for an Islamic empire, 
and that in a number of places, Hindu holy sites had been destroyed and Muslim sites built on their ruins or temples converted to mosques, much as the Turks did with Hagia Sophia in, or even uh, the Dome of the Rock, which was placed as a kind of a symbol of, of Islamic power in Jerusalem. And then on top of that comes the British colonization, where again, um, you know, the sort of Indian Hindus aren't making their own history. They're the subject of histories being created and narratives being told by other people. And that that is a useful thing to think about. Uh, so I would I would recommend that. You know, actually, this is gonna, this is kind of embarrassing, but I I read the com- I was working with the Complete Idiot's Guide to Hinduism or what you know Hinduism for Dummies, uh, which describes my state of knowledge about mm-hmm. Hinduism, and it can tell you just how ignorant I was that I learned a lot from mm-hmm. reading that book. And I've been kind of immersing, you know, I've been reading uh, in dabbling in the Ramayana, the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata, which is one of the sort of long, you know, most important uh, Hindu narratives, is something like 15 times the length of the Jewish and Christian scriptures combined. Uh, The Ramayana is merely about three times as long. Uh, The Bhagavad Gita is like one little piece of, of the Mahabharata. So, um, just trying to kind of orient myself a bit in the world of Hindu religious history, mythology, philosophy. I find I'm having less less time these days reading fiction than I am just, you know, sort of trying to immerse myself a bit into, you know, this fascinating, endlessly complex culture. It's as complex as the country. And these days, uh, one of the things that I did while I was here is people who read my my Wall Street Journal column know I went to see the 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 new temple uh, to Ram in in Ayodhya, and to see um, just tens of thousands of Indians streaming toward this temple, people breaking out spontaneously into chants of praise to uh, to Ram even on the airplane flying from, from Ayodhya back to Delhi, the passengers on the plane started chanting Jai Shiram. I mean, it's, you know, there, there's something really big happening here. And those of us in, in the United States, what happens here is going to matter a lot to, to our ability to maintain, as we say, a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, to, um, future our own economy society we look at the the role of indians in the american tech complex um it is you know and yet we know almost nothing about it or at least i do and i don't think i'm that much more ignorant than the average american when it comes to india so i find my you know i would say to to people reading this just read all you can about india history the philosophy, the religion, the culture, and watch Bollywood movies. Uh, Lagan, I think we've mentioned before on this show, is really, it's, it's, it's a movie everybody who wants to understand the world we're living in. That's not a bad place to start. 
All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to Will Cummings at Hudson and my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next week. And until then, please go rate and review us. This helps other people find the show.